the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 22, Pepe Lives. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast and the second part of our series on the reign of Pepe II, King of Upper and Lower Egypt in the mid-6th dynasty. If you have just joined the series, I suggest listening to episode 21 first, as it will introduce the king and his personality, giving context to today's discussion. If you're a continuing listener, welcome back, and on with the show. In the 22nd year on the throne, Pepe II was now a young man grown secure and capable of ruling on his own merits. The expeditions dispatched to Nubia and the Sinai during his early reign and the last years of his father, Merenre, had brought back great wealth for the royal household. Putting that wealth to use, Pepe II began to promulgate decrees for the protection and securement of temples located up and down the Nile Valley. At Koptos, near modern-day Luxor, the king dispatched a decree to the overseer of Upper Egypt, Kui, and the vizier, Jao. These two high officials were to spread the decree to provincial lords and ensure its dictates were preserved. The decree itself comes to us on a large stela housed in the Cairo Museum. The dedications made within this decree were directed at the Temple of Min, an ancient deity of fertility whose origins can be traced back to at least the early dynastic period of episodes 1 to 3. Min's cult was a potent one, though it would only be in the Middle and New Kingdoms that he attained the royal status tied to Horus. In the Old Kingdom, Min was connected most importantly to the black soil of the floodplain, and, more abstractly, the regenerative cycle of sunrise which occurred in the east. As such, he was a valuable symbol for Pepe II to cultivate, especially as the third decade of his reign began. Soon, he would be celebrating a said festival, in which his powers and right to rule were renewed, making the right offerings sooner rather than later, would assure his rejuvenation occurred at the right time. The Koptos Decree is a long one, but its essence may be summarized as a series of protections and exemptions aimed at the local priesthood. It was set up on a stela at the gate of the temple. Pepe's decree was in fact a renewal of earlier protections, which needed to be repeated periodically by the kings. Ancient lives being shorter than ours, a decree was only truly valid for the average lifespan of a human. Past that length, the decree could lapse more and more readily. Pepe, now nearly 30, had ruled for almost a generation of his subjects' lives. The protections had to be repeated. The key part of this decree was as follows. As the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Nefakare Pepe II lives, one should not take the priests away for any work with the exception of performing their priestly duties for Min 
of Koptos. It is a matter dear to the heart of Nefercare that things be carried out in accordance with the wordings of this decree. And indeed, any official who does not carry out matters in accordance with the wording of this decree, my majesty does not permit them to serve as priests in the pyramid of Nefercare forever. To be a priest in the temples of Old Kingdom Egypt was to lead a somewhat tenuous career path. Very few permanent positions existed, and those which did were held by a small number of wealthy families, who monopolized opportunities for their own benefit. Most priests seem to have moved from temple to state administration positions and back again. The line between cult and state which we take for granted, did not exist in ancient Egypt. In the bigger picture, the decrees erected by Pepe II, and a couple by his predecessors, reflect an increasing trend of protection aimed at the rural temples. The rulers of Dynasty VI were vocally pious, and put great resources at the disposal of religious institutions. Pepe I had set up a decree at the same temple of Min, and also at the pyramid temple of the great king Sneferu, founder of the fourth dynasty. These decrees affirmed the exemption and protection of important cults in a time when economic devotion to the gods was as important as symbolism or ritual. In time, this had a twofold effect. On the one hand, it enabled provincial communities to thrive in connection with the temples which existed in their midst. On the other, it slowly separated the royal household from rural towns and temple institutions, creating a sense of autonomy that would make it far easier for local rulers to ignore the king and usher in the age of disunity which ends Egypt's old kingdom. Such difficulties were far in the future at this time, as Pepe II reached his 30th year on the throne. Now 36 years old, Pepe II made ready to celebrate his first said festival. If you remember, the said festival was a renewal of royal authority and energy, a testing ground where the king proved his worth, and a celebration of the sacred order, Ma'at, which was preserved by the king. Having come to the throne at a young age, it seems to have always been a feature of Pepe's public image that he connected himself very strongly with the gods and goddesses who gave life to him as a divine leader of mankind. His said festival imagery mirrors this, showing the king in the company of Ray and a small number of goddesses who are credited with giving him life and vitality. In the prime of life, Pepe II was now at the peak of his powers, both as a ruler and as a human being. This power of the king extended southward, east into the Sinai, and north towards modern-day Syria. Indeed, during this general period of his life, 
we are told of an expedition dispatched by Pepe II to the Palestinian coastline, where an agent of the king had been killed while on a mission to build a fleet. The royal official Pepe Nacht Hekaib was sent to the region of Byblos, on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, to retrieve the body of this unnamed official and return it to Egypt. Pepe Nacht was dispatched with an armed contingent and they made a brief incursion into the Palestinian region to drive away the group who had attacked the earlier Egyptian expedition. In his tomb biography, Pepe Nacht described this as instilling the fear of Horus in the foreign lands, basically proclaiming the power of Pepe II as Horus far afield. The expedition itself brings us to a key aspect of Egyptian burial beliefs. Pepe Nacht was dispatched not only to punish the raiders, but far more importantly, to fetch the body of his colleague and bring it back to Egypt proper. You see, an Egyptian who died outside of Egypt was at risk of losing his way in the underworld and not having a home to which to return. An Egyptian soul required a home, and without the rituals of mummification or a proper tomb in the Nile Valley region, a soul was at risk of losing its way, becoming a wandering ghost in the underworld. The strength with which the ancients believed this is demonstrated by Pepe Nacht's expedition, which would have been costly, time-consuming, and required a dedication of soldiers and ships far outweighing the actual significance of the raid. A king had obligations to his subjects, and Pepe Nacht was dispatched to Byblos in order to fulfil these obligations on the behalf of his ruler. After all, what good is a king if he does not protect his subjects, alive and dead? The problem of officials dying outside of Egypt was probably an increasingly common one at this time. As the Egyptians pushed their influence further into Nubia and sent trading expeditions to Syria and Punt, the risk of death in a foreign land was increasing. We are given an account of another occurrence like this in the biographical text of a second individual named Sabni, buried at a provincial town now called Kubet el Hawa. This Sabni is a very different individual from the son of Pepinacht, sent to Nubia to retrieve obelisks for the king. This latter individual, whom I have simply called Sabni too, tells us how a messenger arrived to bring him news that his father, on an expedition to southern Nubia, had died in the service of the king. What follows is Sabni II's expedition to recover the body. I set forth, accompanied by a troop of men from my estate, and one hundred donkeys, carrying all the requirements for making gifts in the foreign lands. I wrote letters to let it be known that I had set forth to bring back that father of mine who had travelled to Wawat. 
I satisfied the foreign lands with my gifts, and I found my father. I made for him a wooden coffin, and I brought it along with its lid, especially to bring him out of these foreign lands. I sent a messenger, the royal noble Iri, along with two of my dependents as an advance party, and I went down to place this father of mine in his tomb in my town. When the messenger Iri returned from the royal residence, he brought a decree to confer the offices of Hatia Count, seal bearer of the king of Lower Egypt, sole companion and lector priest upon my father. He also brought two embalmers, a senior lector priest, one who is on annual duty, and all the equipment from the embalming house. Sabni's journey south into Nubia to retrieve the body of his father was just one more instance of an Egyptian taking great care to ensure the protection of a body. When he returned, he was a recipient of the king's generosity, as was proper. For the ruler of Egypt, protector of mankind, the obligation always existed to protect both the body and the soul of his subjects. Pepe II, during the middle years of his life, fulfilled these obligations with aplomb. This is told to us quite poignantly in a biographical tale recorded by Sabni's son named Mehu. I travelled with a troop from my estate to pay homage to the king. When I had paid homage, I travelled upstream to Elephantine. When I arrived at Elephantine, I found that my father, Sabni, had died. Having brought back all the tribute which he had collected with the expedition that he had brought back. I found him there in the purified place, laid out in the manner of the dead, in the place of purification. When I arrived at the residence, His Majesty said, Invocation offerings shall be set up for your father, and I have had a decree brought for him. All the needs of burial were provided from the places of the royal residence, in the same manner as would be done for a hereditary prince in the pyramid of Pepe II. Three generations of officials in service to the king, each of them provided for by the ruler. Two of them had died in service, and were embalmed at the expense of Pepe II. As part of the general attitude taken by this king towards his subjects, these biographies reveal the care taken by the king and the emphasis on building proper relationships between ruler and subject. It was a time in Egyptian history when the bonds between ruler and ruled were expressed more visibly than ever before. The king upheld Ma'at throughout the land, and his officials went beyond the borders to acquire the resources necessary to fund the state's dedications. All in all, it was perhaps a time of economic prosperity and happiness. Pepe II's life and the middle section of his reign are a highlight of royal policy in Old Kingdom Egypt. 
more sources exist from this general period than any other rain that we have seen so far. For those of you who have been with us since the start, you will recognize that it is rare to reach a king who requires two episodes to cover his reign. Pepe II is going to require at least three, for the very simple reason that telling his story in one or even two sections would require a lot of compression of material. I've tried to address Pepe's reign chronologically, but there will be some occasional flashbacks next episode, as we discuss trends that have been ongoing during this period. The most important of these trends is the slow but steady increase in the power of local officials, and their growing sense of independence from any superior authority. Simply put, as the 6th dynasty reached its peak around the middle reign of Pepe II, from here on the power of the king becomes increasingly ephemeral, tied more to his symbolic authority than any real strength or vigour. Join us next time for the final episode in the reign of Pepe II. The kingdom begins to slowly crumble under the weight of its own obligations and the aging king cannot keep pace with the tides of social change.